Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, and it is my honor to introduce Dr. Aaron Moffat. Since 2014, he's coached servicemen and women as a sports psychology consultant for the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program and in 2016 was named the head coach for Team USA at the Invictus Games. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is episode 22. Such an honor to interview you. I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, ma'am. Right. I would like to start with asking about your career choice. Tell me about why did you become a sports psychologist and what is a sports psychology? I started becoming interested in sports psychology Originally, I was a swimmer myself, and then also I coached swimming since I was about 18 years old or so. And one of the first teams that I coached, I had a kid that was deaf, was adopted. We now know that he has Asperger's, is on the autism spectrum, and then he also has some manic depression and such. And even as a young child, he needed a psychologist way back when. He was probably about eight, nine, ten years old when I first started coaching him. And even back at that time, he needed a psychologist. And I was, like I said, going into college and trying to figure out what my career wanted to be. And I really saw the relationship that he and I were building and the need for a psychologist for him. So he was going to a psychologist, but because he was deaf, And his main mode of communication was American Sign Language. There was only two in our area, one that was about an hour away, and then another one that was about an hour and a half away. And his parents chose to go to the one that was a little bit closer, so only about an hour away. And that psychologist was so busy that he could pick and choose his cases. And he didn't pick Alex. And that was another blow to Alex. And so he kind of took that personal and thought that he wasn't even messed up with these other messed up kids Mm -hmm. and where does he fit? And fortunately, the one place where he could fit was in the pool. So we developed a fantastic relationship. Even to this day, I still have a relationship with him and his family 20, 30 years later. And so it's great to see what sport can teach and the lessons that sport can teach. And so that's kind of what brought me into that field and that's kind of what I would like to focus on. And you then studied kinesiology, is that true? Yes. And so my doctorate's in kinesiology with a dual focus in sports psychology and adaptive physical activity. And so I purposely wanted to combine both the sports psychology and the adapted field. So working with people with disabilities 
and then eventually it moved me over to working with Wounded Warriors. That's awesome. Somewhere in between, you created a nationally recognized Paralympic-style tournament called the Disability Sport Festival? Yes. And so before I worked with the Air Force Wounded Warrior program full-time, I was a professor out at Cal State San Bernardino, and I created, like you said, the Disability Sports Festival. And we have 10 years, 11 years, something to that extent. I think this would be our 12th, but unfortunately, we weren't able to host it this year. And so we have it postponed for another year. But yes, and so we had our largest event. We had a little over 900 participants participating in, I think it was 26 to 28 different sports. We had Paralympic coaches come out, world-class coaches to come out and introduce the different sports to the athletes. So it's absolutely a fantastic event. It's amazing. And that's something you do on the side from the Wounded Warrior. Yes, wow. yes. That was something You're I did on the side. You're one busy psychologist. Yes. <laughs> Can you share with us what does your day look like as a sports psychologist at the Wounded Warrior Program? On an everyday basis, there's two different focus I have, I guess. One is when I'm in the office, and then one when we're out on the road and we do what we call care events. So our care events focus on caregiver. So CARE is an acronym for caregiver. A is Adapted Sports and also our Ambassador Program, which is an outreach program where we teach our warriors how to teach their story and heal through teaching their story. And then also they're telling their story across the Air Force. And so a lot of these tactical pauses are being led by our ambassadors. So our ambassadors are going out and speaking their story of these tactical pauses throughout the Air Force that we're hearing right now. And that's a part of their treatment as well, sounds yes, like. Yes, exactly. And then R is our RAMP program, which is our peer mentoring program, and also resiliency programs. So that's what I oversee. And then E is empowerment and transition. Mm -hmm. And that's helping those warriors transition from active duty to what's life after active duty. And so I oversee the resiliency programs. And so at a care event, we do a comedy improv to improve class. We do a rock to recovery class. We do a painting with a purpose class. We do a journaling class. I do a sports psych focus meeting where we do some goal settings. We also look at confidence and successes from our week and how do we take these lessons that we learn in a care event and apply them to home. And so we're focusing on education, teaching different life skills to these warriors and how do you apply them to home? I say quite often, that we don't want you to be successful the one week that you're out of one of our care events. We want you to be successful 52 weeks a year, not just the one that you're with us. Mm -hmm. The day for you, would you say it's mostly teaching? Would you work with groups, with individuals? So yes, I do a lot of teaching and primarily with groups. And so my focus is on education and my field of sports psychology is more about education than what some people would think of you know, the good old Freud laying on a couch, tell me about your dreams. No, yeah. <laughs> I may ask you about your dreams in the sense of where do you want to go with your goals? Right. Not tell me about last night's <laughs> dream and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But no, I'm talking about, you know, what are your goals? What are your dreams after being active duty? Or how can I help you transition? Be it to back to active duty, full active duty, or is it to the civilian world? So those are the things that I'm trying to work on with the warriors. 
And then I do it through sports mostly or in a classroom working with groups. What is sports psychology? So sports psychology, in a nutshell, it's the psych of performance. And so as good old Yogi Berra said, sports is 90% mental. The other half is physical. So, you know, that's Yogi Berra with his math, not mine, but <laughs> it is that mental side of sport. And so we're trying to help with people with that mental side of sport and seeing them increase their own performance, be it in sport. But I also like to say that we teach these lessons to apply to home. Mm-hmm. How can you apply goal setting to your home? How can you apply assertiveness to your home? How can you apply social skills, coping skills? I just do it in the sports realm. Actually, that was going to be my next question. Where can sports psychology be applicable outside of athletic endeavors? And how can it help service members get from point A to point B in whatever realm they choose to? A lot of times we think of sports psychology and performance, but we're performing all the time. And so in our Improv to Improve class that BJ Lang teaches, he's talking about communication and being in the moment. And so, yes, we're doing it in an improv comedy way, but we have to be in a moment all the time. Mm. And so how do you center yourself, be it breathing, be it your own cue word, the movie For the Love of the Game, the guy tries to block out all the extraneous stimuli that's going on and he focuses in just on the catcher. And so same thing. There's so much going on, especially for our warriors Mm -hmm. with anxiety, PTSD, if they have a TBI, there's so much going on in their world. How do you get back to center? Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're trying to teach them of how do you bring yourself back to center so you can handle what you need to handle in that moment. Mm -hmm. Who would you say is your favorite type of client? What kind of client is your favorite type of client to work with? My favorite type of client is the one that wants to succeed. And that's the scary thing for so many of our warriors. Unfortunately, so many of our warriors feel, I hate to say it, but feel that they're getting kicked out. They're not wanting to necessarily leave the Air Force. So many of our warriors thought that they would be lifers. Mm -hmm. You know, the Air Force would be their career and be it that they've only been in for a couple of years to, you know, we have had some warriors fight to get to 20. Some of them a little longer than 20, which is great. But so many of our warriors think that they want to continue serving. That's what their personal mission is. And so we're Air Force program. And so fortunately, they trust us. And kind of get to your question of what's the favorite one is the best part of my job. Our colonel says that our warriors get no so many times, be it no, but the AFI says you can't do this. Mm. The doctor says, no, you can't do that. Their mm. commander says, no, you can't do this. We're the actual people that get to say yes. And so fortunately, those warriors come to us and we bring them some hope and we get to say yes. And you see that light click in them. And a lot of times, originally, they're distrusting because they bled. This is their family. You know, the Air Force is their family, and all of a sudden they get, like I said, feel that they're getting kicked out of the service from their family. And yet we're now saying, hey, we're going to be your family. And so at first they may be a little distrusting, but when we get to say yes to them, they're like, hmm, can you Mm -hmm. follow up on that? Can you prove that to me? 
And so that's what we try to do with them and show them by our actions that, yes, you can trust us. Yes, we are going to follow through. And once we get that, that's when you have that client that is like, yes, I will work with you and go the distance and really try to work on becoming an active participant in their own recovery. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to get their buy-in first. Yes. And then once you have the buy-in that they invested and then you can work with them in the way that fits. Absolutely. And a similar question, what about your favorite issue to work through or favorite maybe subject, like what you specialize in maybe? Yeah. And so a lot of it is, like I say, going back to that trust and a lot of our warriors are, like I said, they're told no, especially from the doctors. And I love proving doctors wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I love proving society's view on what you can do. And Give me an example. So one of the great things that we were fortunate to do, both my director of the AFW2 program, Ms. Marsha Gonzalez, and I, so many years ago, the Department of Defense took over what's called the Warrior Games. That's a Paralympic-style competition between each of the services. And then the last few years, we've also invited so many other countries that have hosted the Invictus Games. And so when we were creating that, there wasn't blind archery. And we had a couple archers that had visual impairments. And they're like, I like archery, but I don't know how I'm supposed to be able to do that. I can't see. You know, and I'm like, and they're fully blind or partially. So they would have some sight, but when you actually do blind archery, I knew a former world champion blind archer, and her and her husband actually make so many equipment. But literally, the archer is blindfolded. All the archers are blindfolded to equal out the playing field. Well, how the heck are you supposed to shoot blind? But what you do is kind of set up a tripod, like a camera tripod, and then you kind of put a screw at the end that sticks out. So now when you stick your hand out um, that's holding on to the bow, you have a place on where your hand's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And then you also have markers on the floor to say, okay, this is where my feet are going to be. So now I'm directed. I I know how to stand. And just like any other archer, now you got to trust yourself to shoot that arrow into the bullseye. Though you can't see what it is, and there's a coach that is there, but the only thing that coach is allowed to tell you is after the arrow is shot, where is it on the clock? You know, and so you think of your target as a clock, and you can say red, one o'clock, or whatever color it is, and where it is on the clock. That's the only thing that you're allowed to say to that person. And so that person's shooting. How do you train for that? You would still do your regular archery. And then you have another friend that shoots with you that can tell you exactly where to do it. You rely on your muscle memory. Yes, exactly. And so every time you line up your hand on that notch from that screw, okay, now I know the positioning. And it's just like any other person with a sight. Now I know my positioning because I know exactly where my feet are supposed to go. And I know exactly where my hand is supposed to go. Now the rest of it is how do I pull the bow back? You know, how am I gauging myself? Do I shoot up, shoot down? Those type of things. And so it's just like regular archery. Now you just got to 
Now you just can't see anything. Yeah, now you can't see anything. What is your role in that? Back then, I introduced that to Mrs. Gonzalez and told her that this is a possibility. And so when we went and we were writing the DoD Warrior Games rules, we're like, yeah, we have a person that wants to shoot archery. Let's add this in. And so we were able to do that kind of stuff. That's part of my role as an adaptive physical activity subject matter expert. I know what the Paralympic field is and what is out there and what are the possibilities. And so that's the thing that I love to do is prove what society think is possible. And sometimes even what that warrior thinks is possible mm. and showing them what they can do. Mm. And when you see that light turn on and that smile, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. That's the thing that I love to do. And that's the part that I get to show them. Be it in a pool, one of my warriors, she swims with one arm. And at first she swam with both arms, but it was causing her more damage in her shoulder. And so most people would think, well, how the heck does a person swim with one arm? Aren't they going to swim in circles? Mm -hmm. And I just teased her and said, well, swimmers swim in circles anyway. It's called laps. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just worked on that kind of stuff. But again, she needed to trust me that I knew what I was going to do. But I also had to build her confidence immediately and show her that she could do it. And so I just gave her one or two tiny, easy pointers. And she's like, oh, my God, that works. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll hire you as my smoke coach. <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> that's what you do is, is you give them an immediate success and show them that there is this possibility. And then they're able to find that success. How is she able to swim? She does. She swims with one arm. What, and are, so, what are some of the things when you say, you know, one so of the things? One of the things that we do is we bring her hands in closer to her body. So she's almost swimming more midline mm -hmm. than out further. Prevents her from swimming in circles. Yes, exactly. With her breaststroke, she's a phenomenal breaststroker. And everything that we've talked to her with is shooting forward. And again, with her stroke, she has shorter strokes, but it's in closer to her body in the midpoint of her body or midline of her body. So it's not out to the left and it's not out to the right. It's closer to the middle and she's reaching forward all the time. Same thing with her kick, because otherwise, if one of her kicks is a little stronger than the other, which for her, because of her injury, she has greater weakness on one side of the body. And so we also got to modify her kick a little bit. So it's equal propulsion with her kick. And so she can go straight. Mm. It's interesting to think about we have different bodies. All of us have different mm -hmm. bodies. We're built differently. I'm a little bit longer. I have longer arms. I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> I can make you a swimmer. I don't know. A lot of people said that. Yes. No, <laughs> Everybody we love long bodies. <laughs> yes. My coach used to say, you look like a swimmer. Why can't you swim? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, this would apply to probably any regular, quote unquote, not injured person. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has all their physical abilities. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm coaching a high school swim team. My son's on the team. And so he's recruited a couple of his friends to join the team. I'm like, yes, because I can't teach height. They're nice, long kids. I'm like, yes, this is fantastic. I'm so excited about it. Awesome. Yeah. Is there a difference in your work, how you apply your skills, working with people who have physical disability and those who have invisible ones? Not necessarily. One of the things that I have to pay attention to, so many invisible injuries, 
the big one is PTSD or traumatic brain injuries. And so for both of those, I can't overwhelm a person. And so just like anybody else, and I try to make these accommodations and modifications just in general in my environment, what I would call my classroom environment, but it'd be my sporting environment. And I can't teach too many things at one time or I can't have too much craziness going on all about it where I want a quieter room or I sit down and like, so with this one swimmer that I was just talking about, she also probably has a TBI and she forgets things a lot. And so I would have to write down her workout. And that's a typical coach thing. You mm-hmm. just write down the workout so people can see it. But she's like, oh my God, like now I remember what I'm supposed to do. But I could only tell her one or two things at a time versus a lot of times, hey, I want you to focus on this, this, this. And no, mm-hmm. as a coach, you're like, no, just focus on one thing. You can't focus on 10 things at a time. Well, I feel like with swimming, I don't have a TBI, but I can only <laughs> yeah. focus on one thing. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so that's some of the differences. And then physical injuries, you're thinking of physical accommodations. And so how do I make different physical accommodations? And so a few years ago, one of my favorite seasons of coaching in Texas, I had a warrior that was a limb amp. So it was missing below the elbow on his left arm, I think it was, and then kind of almost like it had a hook for his hand on his other arm. And then also I had wounds in his legs. And then I had another one that is now an above knee amputee, but at the time he still had his leg, but it was severely damaged. And shortly after that season is when he became an above knee amputee. Another one that was a hip disarticulate. So she was an amputee all the way up to her hip. Wow. And then another one that was full bodied, that you would say, had an illness and had some damage to her muscles and a rotator cuff related to it. But like you said, it was an invisible wound. But I would coach all four of them at the same time. And that was an absolute blast because. I had so many different, you could say, disabilities, functional abilities, but that's what you do is you make those accommodations and just make sure that everyone's successful. Mm -hmm. You know, we worked on the social skills. We worked on coping skills. I say all the time, my job's really fun because I get to yell at them for an hour and a half, two hours, maybe an hour, and get to torture them. Not real torture, folks, but uh, (laughs) I get to yell at them and push their limits. And then at the end of the practice, they have to say thank you because they're military. (laughs) So (laughs) it's kind of (laughs) cool, you know, but that's what I do. And that's how I focus on confidence is, look, you didn't think you could do this and now you can. I just did these little accommodations, modifications, and you did all the work. Like I said, I just yelled at you, Mm -hmm. you know, standing on a pool deck saying, no, do this. Mm -hmm. Look what you did. You work on the social skills. Like I said, I coach my son's high school swim team and I have warriors sometime come in with them because again, their shared experiences can teach each other a lot of great lessons. You teach those social skills, teaching coping skills. So that's one of the great things that we can do. 
Is there one skill or one technique that you would recommend to service members going through difficult times? Or not even service members going through difficult times, maybe those of us who are trying to achieve a certain goal, mm-hmm. be it in the physical realm, and any kind of athletic endeavor or anything else. So one of the big things that I talk to our warriors about is controlling what you can control. Trust me, they hear that all the time. They're yeah. like, yes, got it, coach. <laughs> can and you teach so, me that? Yeah. And so it's controlling what we can control. Actually, the other day we were at a carry event up at Scott Air Force Base. I was saying the same lesson and one of my warriors came up afterwards saying, hey, my commander has really been pushing resiliency and coping and how do we handle situations and being resilient. And his commander says, it's E plus R equals O. So our event plus our reaction or our response equals the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so what the event is, is what it is, but how we respond to that event impacts the outcome. And so one of the lessons that I talk a lot about is today, you know, you could go to church on a Sunday, you know, and a lot of churches love to have donuts after church, right? And probably the major goal that most people have, especially at the beginning of the year, is my weight, or I want to be healthier, I want to eat healthier, something to do with being healthier. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we think of, okay, this event, I'm going to have a donut. Oh my God. And what most people say is, I just cheated. You know, I had a cheat meal. And that makes me feel really bad. All right. And so because I had one cheat meal, I might as well make it a whole cheat day, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I make it a cheat day. It turns into a cheat year. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) it turns into a cheat week. And then you just fall off the wagon in a whole cheat year, right? Whole cheat life. You know, exactly. A whole (laughs) cheat life. Versus... I have that donut and my reaction is, I just worked my butt off for this week. I did a great job on my diet or being healthy or going and doing exercise every day, whatever it is. And I get to reward myself with a donut. Now, how is that person going to react? That person's probably going to react. Fantastic. I can go back and have my lunch be a healthy lunch or I want to go and work out because I just rewarded myself for good hard work versus blaming myself for Hmm. having a donut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so that's what we can control is what we say to ourselves. We can control if we had that donut or not. But in that instance, the event is I just had a donut. I get to choose my reaction to it. And that influences the outcome to it. Mm -hmm. Something that I wanted to talk about with you today, I love Tim Ferriss. I'm obsessed with Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful podcast. And I listened to one of his recent podcasts. And he, in passing, he talked about something else, about wolves and conservation. But he mentioned in passing about failing behavioral modifications. So he always talks about, you always think about experimenting and then behavioral modifications. When I think about our behavior and building resilience and building grit, What do you think are some of the failures and how to prevent those failures in behavioral modifications? A lot of what I try to do is our warriors are going to fail, you know, plenty of times. But how do we react to that? The same thing in life. And that's what a lot of our warriors are struggling with is this 
great big life occurrence just happened to me. And that's what I talk to him about is what can you control in this situation? And sometimes, especially when we're in the moment, it's really hard to understand what we have control over. And sometimes, some of our warriors, it's hard for them to get out of bed. It really is. It's hard to get out of bed because they're so stuck in their mind be it survivor guilt or depression or anxiety, whatever it is. And it can take them a very long time to get out of bed. But one of the things I start, if I'm working with a warrior on that, is, okay, for a week, figure out, on average, how long does it take you normally to get out of bed? Sometimes it can be two hours. Well, can we focus on, can we make it an hour and a half? And what things can we control to make it an hour and a half and finding success in that, you know, because sometimes can we be a hundred percent of our 40%? Because I got to tell you, some days we wake up only having 40%, be it we're tired, Mm -hmm. we didn't eat right the day before, be it God knows what, we woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I mean, in America, we have that saying, you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Mm -hmm. And that means we can't describe Mm -hmm. why we're in this funk today. Mm -hmm. And so either A, identifying why am I in this funk or B, okay, I am this way. I probably only have 40% today, but I'm going to give 100% of that 40%. And typically by the end of the day, it at least becomes a 50 or 60%. You're like, wow. Mm-hmm. I was able to succeed, even if it was just that little thing. And so that's how you work with individual clients. Mm-hmm. Do you have any suggestions for a broader context? I think overall, I use Bandor's self-efficacy model. How do you focus on successes? Whatever ways that he's able to increase success, you know, his precursors to success, those are the things that I look at in our warriors. And how can I influence one of those and change that behavior for that person, Mm -hmm. you know, or help them change that behavior? Do you think that we can incentivize resilience? Yes, I guess. I mean, one of the ways that I kind of joke around with our warriors, but like one of the lessons that I talk a lot about is when we start doing that negative self-talk, you know, as an athlete, you know, I just struck out or I just had a bad swim, or my arrow shanked, or whatever it is. And we start going down that negative spiral. And a lot of times, it doesn't just slowly go down. It's very quick. It's very quick. We fall off a cliff. Let's admit it. <laughs> you know? we didn't have those times. Yes. Yeah. yeah we 30 fall seconds. Off the cliff. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Really quick. And so we got to stop that. And that's one of the things that we got to do. And so how I incentivize that positive self-talk, you can't necessarily see it or measure it. But one of the ways that I do that with our warriors is, hey, start off with so many coins in your pocket in a day because they're military. You know, you guys love all the coins. Or is there a significant coin that you have? Mm-hmm. Or is it some pebbles or something, a bunch of stuff in one pocket, pieces of paper? And it could be just little slogans of pieces of paper in one pocket. And then how I incentivize it is, okay, if you're able to just recognize that you're talking negative to yourself, I don't care if you do anything about it, 
But if you recognize it the first time, mm -hmm. switch that piece of paper from one pocket to the other pocket. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, how many times were you able to do that? And then mark that up on the calendar. And so it gives us that physical feeling of switching it. And it's kind of given ourselves a reward. No, is it a huge extrinsic reward? No, but it's that, you know what? I just did that. And it kind of gives you that pride that comes from success. And you're like, huh, I wonder if I can do that again. Mm. And so it kind of starts building that up with a warrior. And so that's kind of how I see incentivizing resiliency is when we hit these tough times, are we able to do something about it and recognize ourselves for it? Self-talk is one of the aspects of that. Absolutely. Among you know, others. Yeah, absolutely. And so that self-talk can either increase our confidence or decrease our confidence. And can you so, talk a little bit about that? Because I think that it's maybe more intuitive for you and I. I think that sometimes maybe my patients, service members may believe that Negative self-talk is a way of punishing themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't do this. I'm stupid. Right. I didn't, you know, achieve this goal. I overreacted. I, Absolutely. And I so, have a DUI, so I'm stupid. and kind of like, oh, yeah. like, I can't be kind to myself now because mm -hmm. if I'm kind to myself and I'm accepting of what happened, that means I'm forgiving myself and they'll do that again. And I have to continue to punish myself. And I think that's one of the kind of mistakes that people start getting into or the patterns that are not helpful to them. Right. And I can't say that this is my idea whatsoever. I stole it from a friend of mine, Mark Campbell. But one of the things that I hear him say quite often, and he's so right about it, in my opinion anyway, is think about how many times were you sent home or sent to your room to go think about what you did right? Mm, yeah. Probably not. You know, however, your parents always taught you to go think about what you did wrong, you know, and we start to learn that. And I understand what, well, you know, yeah, I, I'm a father myself, you know, like, I want to teach my sons, right, good and bad. And, and like you said, you, you had this punish and stuff like that. And then even in the military, warriors can relate to this quite often is think of your after action reports. Very few times in an after action report, do we talk about what went right? Mm. We always talk about what went wrong and how do we fix it, mm -hmm. which I understand. Trust me, there's an absolute reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it's needed. So don't get me wrong. But we don't focus on, hey, you did a good job on this. And like even in the after action report, we need to make sure that this happens again. You know, like something went right and we need to make sure that this happens the right way the next time too. So how do we ensure that? And so focusing on our successes, focusing on what we can do. But like you said, I think it's trained from such a young age of focusing on what we did wrong and blaming ourselves and punishing ourselves. And why is it not good for you? Why is it not helpful? And, and so with that, I was talking to a warrior last week about this and he's like, I can tell my supervisee, my airman, no, like, this isn't going to define you, your whole career. You can focus on this little thing, but I can't do it myself. And I eat myself alive about it, you know, and I go into my dark hole. My performance goes down. I can't get out of my head. I may negatively react and yell at someone. Mm -hmm. 
especially with warriors with anxiety or PTSD, if they focus in on so much of that versus what can I do right? And it just gets them down into that negative spiral. I'm crappy. I'm a bad person. I'm horrible. And it just, I mean, that's probably the nicest things that we say to ourselves versus those positive things. And then if we have those positive things, it can increase our self-esteem versus, no, I'm a worthless person. I'm a worthless airman. I don't even know why I'm bothering. I don't even know why my spouse or significant other is with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know why my kids would even want me as their parent. Mm -hmm. And it can lead to a great depression. And, you know, the epidemic that Chief Wright just talked about with suicide, and it's becoming an epidemic in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And we got to do something to change that and focusing on some of the positives and what can we do to support each other, to help them modify behavior in a positive way, saying that, yes, we can do good things. I think would help. Yeah. And maybe we need somebody like a neurolinguist here to explain to us how we form connections. When we say something over and over again, we form dense connection in our mm-hmm. brain. When I repeat to myself, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm never mm-hmm. going to be okay. Now we form this pathway in our brain and then we react a certain way and we behave a certain way. We become that. Yeah. To become that thought of, you know, after not a week, maybe, but after a year, a couple of years of doing something like that, relentlessly to ourselves. And then in order to override that response, we have to say the opposite because we've probably been doing that for a really long time, maybe since our childhood, like I'm stupid, I'm not good enough. How do we override that response by, and maybe sometimes small changes. One of the things that helped me that I do, I never say I'm stupid. So when I make a mistake, I usually say I'm silly. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm really frustrated with myself mm-hmm. and I just say, oh, I'm so silly. I just did that. Yeah. And that's a way to still be upset about it right, and acknowledge right. that something didn't go as well as I had hoped it would, yet not say something disparaging to myself. Like I would never say to my partner, you're stupid. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, we treat ourselves so much worse than we do anybody else that we care about. Yeah. Yet we should care about ourselves. Yeah. You know, like you said, you would never tell your partner you're stupid. Right. Yeah. We would tell I wouldn't ourselves. Even think that. Right. I mean, that's completely foreign, but yeah. because we wouldn't want to hurt that person, but we do that to ourselves all the time. And I've seen some research that says I've seen anywhere from like 15,000 thoughts a day to 70,000 thoughts in a day. Yeah. And most of them being negative. Wow. So we got a lot to do to yeah. combat that. Right. You to know? write those responses. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How has your work changed you? My job is so ridiculous, rewarding. It's <laughs> so ridiculously rewarding. Yes. I mean, like <laughs> I, I get to work with some of the most incredible people every day and I get to just have fun with them, you know, teach something. And like I said, all I'm doing is being available for them and doing some fun work with them. And then they thank me for it. Mm-hmm. like. It's unbelievable how cool I get to go and do. These people trust me to bring me into their life. Where I got to tell you, some of the stories that I hear, there's no way I would trust a single person ever again, be it, you know, I was beaten by another fellow airman Hmm. to, you know, what I saw overseas to, 
you know, whatever it is. And why would they ever trust this random person that has never served in the military? Why would they ever trust me? But I'm able to work with them and build a great, great relationship with them. An amazing rapport. And it's just absolutely incredible. I've coached at the Invictus level, which is, you know, the international level for Wounded Warriors. And I've had a handful of warriors frame or give me their medals to say thank you. And that is by far the coolest thing when they call me brother, you know, what an incredible honor that is. So that's why I love my job. That's awesome. Yeah. I really would love to hear your thoughts about post-traumatic growth Mm -hmm. versus post-traumatic disorder. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I like the philosophy of the post-traumatic growth because that's what we try to do with any person. And not necessarily that you have PTSD, but out of adversity, how do you stand back up? That's what resiliency is. And the basic definition of resiliency is bouncing back. I don't want any of my warriors bouncing back. I want them learning from their experience and growth from that. And that's where you see that post-traumatic growth. I don't want you to bounce back and go in the exact same spot. Meaning because... bouncing back, you don't like that. You go into baseline. Yes, exactly. What, what you expect them to grow. Yes, exactly. You know, and I expect that of my kids. I expect that of, you know, my swimmers. I expect that of the warriors. I expect that of myself. You got to learn from every experience. And that's how you get better. To me, that's what's resiliency. How can you positively react? And what's the lesson learned? from every experience. And that's what resiliency is. That's where I see that post-traumatic growth is, Mm -hmm. is what can I learn from this experience and how can I continue to better myself as a person? I think that's the goal of every person. That's what I think we should do. I'm not sure exactly how to phrase the next question in the correct way, but I'll try. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on those individuals who over-identify with being sick or injured? I've definitely noticed over years that some almost find a sense of comfort, maybe with being connected to the community that identifies with being sick in whichever capacity. And do you think that can keep a person stuck from recovery? That goes back to how do we want to respond to that event that I was talking about, the Mm -hmm. E plus R. Mm -hmm. One of our warriors, I used him last week when I learned of this and, and talked to him a little bit about it. He was in this accident and a life-changing accident. He was an active duty person and now he, you know, he was medically retired. And so, yes, that's obviously a life-changing event. And at first he was stuck and didn't want help. He was a cranky, old, mad, mad, mad person. Used a wheelchair, refused to get out, gained tons of weight, etc., and was just cranky. Unfortunately, a couple of different people pointed it out to him and he made the decision. How did they point it out to him? He was in a certain career field that you can talk bro to bro, you know, with him and say, mm-hmm. you're being a jerk and you need to snap out of it. And she was in charge of the Airman Medical Transition Unit and he was an airman in that AM2. And so, 
she was able to build that positive relationship with him. And her husband is a bodybuilding coach. So they started working together. I talked to him a little bit about like, hey, do you realize he was having lots of pain in his other knee? He's an amputee Mm -hmm. and he was having lots of pain in his other knee and his hips and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, because you're not getting out of your wheelchair. You're gaining weight every day. And that's just causing all these other things happen to you. And so I called him out on it in a polite way, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have to be in a polite way with Mm -hmm. him, but I was very scientific with him. And that was one of the things that he's like, you're right, doc. He's like, I will never forget that conversation with you. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't ever use my wheelchair now. I don't know if I've seen him in this past year use his wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's what do we get solace in? Because I see plenty of our warriors get stuck on the couch and they do, they get stuck on the couch. And fortunately we have these care events. And I think that's what the point of these care events are is to get them off the couch and let us interact with you one-on-one in person and start to get to know your story a little bit better. And so then we can learn how can we help you become an active participant in your recovery. That's one of my goals for our warriors. And that's what I say each care event to our warriors is I want you to become a more active participant in your recovery because otherwise you can become learned pessimistic. I think our system is set up to become learned pessimistic or learned helpless. And that's what my dissertation was on is how do we teach learned optimism versus learned helplessness? I like how you said you have to be an active participant in your own recovery. I Mm -hmm. really like that, that we are responsible for our own recovery. Absolutely. And then the question that I asked earlier on the broader level, on the policy level, almost for the the Air Force, all branches, how do we incentivize that? How do we incentivize a person's learned optimism? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe there is no answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a phenomenal question and it's great thought process. How do you, I mean, obviously you can teach that, but how do you reward that to make that something that people will seek out? That's a great question. Or on the other hand, maybe if that doesn't work, how do you disincentivize the learned helplessness? Right. I don't have an answer to that Yeah, question. and so Marty Seligman, It's a person that coined both learned helplessness and learned optimism and fortunately got to work a little bit with him. And like I said, that's what my dissertation was. So my dissertation was developing a sports and life skills program for kids with physical disabilities, ages 10 to 18, I think it was. And so we did 20 minutes in the classroom, 50 minutes in the gym, 20 minutes in the classroom. And in the classroom, we would teach a subject, be it optimism, goal setting, positive self-talk, assertiveness, social skills, coping skills. And then I think one of the ways that we purposely incentivized it, and I think that's kind of what we do with these care events is then we went and played soccer or Taekwondo. But with the point of teaching these skills, how do you apply learned optimism, goal setting, positive self-talk as you're doing soccer and Taekwondo? And then we go back to that classroom for 20 minutes and Ask them, how did it go? What did you do? How did you apply that? 
Now, big question is, how do you apply this at home? Again, I don't care if you're successful the one week you're with me. I care, are you successful the 52 weeks a year? And so I think that's where we need to make sure our trainings are viable, are worthwhile, that we use the educational pedagogy knowledge of how do you develop a good training program and also make sure that our leadership and the basic airmen understand why is learned optimism important? Why is social skills important Mm -hmm. to flying a plane, Mm -hmm. to communication, to whatever job that they have in the Air Force? Why is that important to Mm -hmm. them? And I think that's what we got to get that buy-in on. Why is that important? And so we can change that focus. It's actually a really nice segue into my next thought, the next question. If you were in charge, if you were a leader, and you could change one thing on a massive scale to increase resilience in service members, in either policy, messaging, recruitment, support services, budgeting, anything, you pick one thing, what would it be? I guess my battle would be two different things. I think one thing is, yes, I agree in corrective behavior. Definitely important. But focusing on success and what a person's strengths are and what they bring to the Air Force makes that person feel more worthwhile than I just need to get here 15 minutes early because I got to relieve someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, why do I want to go and torque that wrench? Why is that important to me? Mm -hmm. Why is it that, you know, I got to turn in you know, after a TDY, enter into DTS within five days. Why is that important? Why is my success or why are my strengths related to the overall impact of the Air Force? Because I see a lot of times some of our warriors, I know talking to a lot of our special ops folks and especially jumpers that, you know, have jumped out of planes and stuff like that. That person that's packing my parachute is more important than I am, you know, because if that person packing my parachute doesn't pack right, then I'm not going to have a successful jump. Then that means that mission fails. And I think every person needs to know that versus that person. I got to stuff a hundred parachutes. This stinks today. Mm -hmm. No, you know why that's ridiculously important? is, and this is why you're really good at that. And so focusing on that person's successes and strengths, I think it would be a good thing. And then I'm a master resiliency trainer. And so teaching those skills and how do you teach those skills is just as important. And so to build that confidence in that airman, build that person's joy in their job, wanting to do their job ridiculously well, you got to have that person teaching that to that person and feel valued for that. Mm-hmm. That's important. We talk about in sports in a sense of that water boy needs to feel as important as LeBron James, you know, on the Lakers. And so, or I think he plays for the Lakers, <laughs> but he needs to feel just as important. Mm-hmm. And we hear that with our warriors. Sometimes it's like, I'm not worthy to 
be called a warrior because mm. I didn't go to combat mm. or I didn't get injured in combat. Mm. And no, you are a part of this Air Force and we value you. And so, yes, you are valued in this program and you will get as much work out of us as as a person that got injured on the front line. Okay. Sounds like two things, messaging and education. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yes. So uh, long answer. Yes. No, no, this, this is perfect. This is great. Yeah. Could you teach me? We'll just improvise, like I did with BJ Lange. It was a blast. Could you teach me a skill? I'm a runner. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to hit certain times, you know, or you know, I'm trying to cover certain distance. I have something in mind, but I think that 99% of listeners could relate on some level to running if they're in the military service. Could you teach me a skill? Yeah. One of the things that I would typically do is, okay, you know, as a runner, what is your goal? What is your incentive? And so that's a couple different things that I would want to do. And so I guess my first question is, why did you choose running? And what is your end goal? What do you want to strive towards? Why did they choose running? Because I love it, because it gives me joy. And the end goal, so I wouldn't say I want to hit a certain time for a certain race. Okay. I would also talk to you about, tell me about your running, you know, and I just ask you, what's it feel like? Mm-hmm. I know what it felt like to me to be in the zone and, and mm-hmm. like hit goals yeah. in swimming. What's it feel like for you when you succeed? What's it feel like? It feels like high. It feels amazing. Yeah. It feels like the world stops and kind of like zooms in on this one very relaxing and at the same time focused thing, which is like being in the moment. Yeah. It feels very powerful, almost like transcending. It feels amazing. Yeah, yeah. Lacking words to describe. Right, (laughs) absolutely. And I can see that in you, Mm -hmm. you know, um, with us just sitting right here Mm -hmm. and like, I could see you going back into that moment Mm -hmm. and you're like, wow, like how cool does that feel? You know? And and so then you talk about, well, what would it feel like if you got this goal, Mm -hmm. you know? And so whatever that goal is, take a couple seconds and imagine yourself achieving that goal. It would almost feel like a relief because I've been trying to hit this goal for a really long time (laughs) and I want it badly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and sometimes it is that. I'm working with a person right now that is a cheerleader. She's trying to work on this multiple flip and this routine, like, it's. I'm like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) But she has this mental block. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm talking to her about the fear of failure and stuff like that and trying to change her negative thoughts. And so, you know, what's some of the reasons, what do you think are some of the challenges that you've faced mm-hmm. as you continue to try to reach this goal? I think one of the biggest challenges for me is I often doubt that I can do it. Like in my mm-hmm. mind, I question whether I can. Okay. And I know it's that we just talked earlier about the newer pathways that are being formed the more you think about it. Right. But that like fear newer pathway is, I mean, it's lit up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I think about that goal and then I think about not getting that goal and I think about feeling badly about it and then being frustrated. So that turns into this negative thinking pattern rather mm-hmm. than the success yeah, that we talked yeah, about earlier. Yeah. And so again, I 
talk to you a little bit. Is it a fear of putting everything in and not obtaining your goal? Or yeah, maybe it's like fear of like falling apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not gonna fall apart. Right. I know that, right? So, yeah, but like yeah. as swimmers, we talk about a piano falling on our back. And <laughs> holy cow, does it freaking hurt? It hurts like no other. You're it, it, like, especially like if you're swimming 200 butterfly or the 200 backstroke. And like, I remember watching a teammate swim the 200 butterfly and he's like, I'm just going to go out for it. And that last 50, he was just swimming straight up and down. And you always want to be going forward. He's just swimming straight up and down. And we we're just laughing on the pool <laughs> because you could just watch this piano just fall right on him. And he's, he's trying to swim with this grand piano on his back. And it was just hilarious. But in the end, it's okay. And that's one of the things is like, so do we want to focus on that hurt or do we want to focus on that pride and that excitement that you talked about and just that incredible joy that you said when you crossed that finish line and you're like, wow, that was really cool. Yeah. And so that's what I would try to start to focus on. So to focus on success after I get my Mm -hmm. goal. Okay. Yeah. And so like every negative thought, we got to stop it. And so I teach you, you know, what is your cue to recognize that you're talking negative to yourself? Mm-hmm. What's a good cue for you to remind yourself, no, I need to stop mm-hmm. and go forward. So like I said, during my dissertation, one of the kids, she's probably 12, 13 at the time, her cue word was rewind because she wanted to replay what she just said to herself and say it in a different way. And so hers was rewind, stop sign. Another person used to use elephants because it stomp out all the problems. What's a cue word for you or an action for you? Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Focus on success, number one. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is recognizing mm-hmm. a negative self-talk when it comes around. Right. And as soon as you recognize it's coming and it's going to interfere with your training or with your success, mm-hmm. create some type of cue. Some kind of cue that's going visual to stop imagery, you. Visual imagery, maybe? Yeah, visual imagery, a word working with softball players, picking up the grass or picking up the dirt and tossing it away, slapping yourself on the side type of thing. I've given teams rubber bands, so they just snap a rubber band on the wrist, something to that extent, but some kind of cue that says, hey, I'm talking negative to myself. I need to stop it. What's a cue for you? You know what I say often, I think intuitively, Mm -hmm. I would say something like, it's okay. That's just kind of a cue word for me to say something isn't going the way I want it to go mm-hmm. and I'm going to stop it. So maybe I can use that. It's Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So that would be a cue. Yeah. That could be your cue. And then follow it up with something that would refute that negative thought. Okay. You know, so I'm a crappy runner. So to say it, you know, whatever your negative thought is, refute that negative thought. So what would be an example of something that a positive statement that would refute your negative thought? My trainings oftentimes are better than my racing, mm-hmm. which is a good indication of some type of <laughs> mental yep. block problem. I think I go back to, but I've done this before. I've hit similar times before mm-hmm. and there was no problem. Yeah. Something like that. Absolutely. What I would also then, the next step is follow up with what do I need to focus on now? Okay. Because if we don't focus on something, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Think about that pink elephant in the room, right? Okay. You know, okay. the, go back to that negative okay. thought. And we want to refute that negative thought. 
So now we have a positive focus on what we can do. And then what do we want to focus on? So what do you want to focus on? Mm. It would be success, maybe? Yeah. It, it, what would be it the could examples? Be your, your success, or it could be something right then in the moment of, I need to focus on my breathing. Oh, refocus you know? in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it, it's a focus on success of that feeling of, I crossed the finish line in that certain time, or is it, I need to have high knees, be it one step in front of the other, mm-hmm. be it, I need to focus on my breathing, whatever you yeah, need you know to focus what I, on. What I do actually, one of my running partners used this during one of the harder runs. And she said that she just listened to a podcast and somebody else was talking about it. Then she borrowed it from that person. Mm-hmm. So she uses the keyword relax. Mm-hmm. as a way to refocus so the run is really hard and so there's nothing relaxing about it no and so in the moment but she sometimes she'll say it out loud just relax mm-hmm. or, and then or one of us will say one of the girls that i run with will say nice and easy and that feels really relaxing and refocusing in the moment and what i often will do i'll drop my shoulders and relax my face yeah yeah exactly it gives you that instant cue of okay i need to do something mm-hmm. that's a great way for you to okay, this is what I need to do in a moment. And like you said, that relax. And then I relax my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it's good to be relaxed. Like you said, it's painful to run. I I get that. But it's important also to have relaxed muscles as we run because tense muscles hurts performance. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. This is really helpful. A little bit selfish from from my perspective. But but I also think for a lot of people, this is something that they can take away and hopefully Mm -hmm. apply Mm -hmm. to everybody has to take PT test, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we all fight negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I teach people to do is recognize that we're having those negative thoughts. Come up with some kind of cue word that stops those negative thoughts. Refute that negative thought. And then the fourth step being what do I need to focus in on right now? Great. Be it success or what do I need, like, in this very second, I need to focus in on this. And that's usually the best thing to do if I need to do this, some kind of actionable statement, because now I have to do that and now I have to focus in on doing that. I can't think of my negative thought now. Mm-hmm. So stop it, you know, recognize it, use that cue. And then refute that negative thought and then change it with a, a positive, actionable thought. Awesome. This is really helpful. I love that this is such a tangible skill. This is probably was mm-hmm. one of my favorite interviews, honestly, it was. Oh, good. Yeah, thank you so much. This was Dr. Aaron Moffitt. He is a sports psychologist in Wounded Warrior Program. Yes. Which is not to be confused with Wounded Warrior Project. Which Correct. Told many we're, we're different. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're a federal government agency, part of the Air Force. Thank you so much for this time together. Well, thank you, ma'am. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's a-n-n-a dot v 
fedotova.mail.com.